I'm Emily. And I'm Hannah. We are best friends and dietitians. We have a goal of challenging nutrition misinformation and fitness trends with an evidence-based approach. Each episode, we will dish up our thoughts about the latest facts on a popular health-related topic. We're the Upbeat Dietitians. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Upbeat Dietitians. I'm Emily. I'm Hannah. Welcome back to this episode. We are joined today by another very special guest. We have with us today, Damian Michael. I met Damian at Purdue, kind of like, like Brendan and Anna, our previous guest, if you're not sensing the theme here that we're ha- kind of having. Um, Damian was actually my big boss when I worked as a personal trainer at Purdue. I will let him introduce himself and talk about what he's doing, what he's up to, and all that good stuff. So, Damien, take it away. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, before we go any further, you know, Hannah saying my last name perfectly correct shows just the level of friendship that we have. So, <laughs> if anyone's questioning, you know, our loyalty as friends, um, check that. Okay, I was a uh, only true friends know. No, you, you, you. You stuck the landing perfectly, so thank you. Now, all jokes aside, though, everyone, hope everyone's doing well. Uh, as Hannah mentioned, my name is Damian Michael. I kind of do a few things professionally right now. So my main job, my my big boy job, as some might say, um, I'm the coordinator of fitness at Florida Atlantic University down in sunny South Florida in Boca Raton. Uh, that's my typical job, kind of a fancy way of saying I oversee the personal training and group fitness department uh, down there. Uh, it's actually really cool because that's my alma mater where I got my bachelor's degree in exercise science health promotion. So it's been wonderful going back there. And then also the founder and head coach of the Shift Method Fitness and Education LLC, which to kind of sum it up you know, nicely, it's a platform that focuses on personal training as well as virtual services, whether it be program design or virtual personal training, as well as making educational content kind of like the Upbeat Dietitians are doing here. And that's a little bit about me. Yeah, I do see the TSM merch you got on there. I love it. That's right. <laughs> Check it out, guys. Thank you. <laughs> well, we want to spend today talking a lot about, we've had, again, we had Brendan on the podcast. I think he's coming out later, though, so scratch that. Um, we want to go into a lot about like personal training and just fitness in general, because Emily and I talk a lot about nutrition as dietitians. But we haven't gotten a lot into exercise a whole lot yet. So that is kind of our goal today, talking about that and sort of its correlation with nutrition as well. So our first actual question, though, has to do with intuitive eating and haze. So Emily and I have touched on intuitive eating a little bit already on here, but we have not gotten into haze yet. We plan on doing a whole episode on that because it is a very, very deep topic. But our question for you, Damien, we'd love to hear your point of view on this is, I guess the question is that some professionals in exercise are kind of skeptical of intuitive eating and also haze as well. So what are your thoughts on this as an exercise professional? Yeah, these are really good questions. And I I think the two are are distinct. So I want to separate them. And I guess I'll start with intuitive eating. So my understanding, of course, I'm not the RD here. As Hannah mentioned, I'm the personal trainer, the Griffiness instructor, the strength and conditioning coach. So please, if I say anything, cut me off. But intuitive eating, from my understanding, from listening to RDs from doing my own research is mainly just the philosophy of building healthy relationships with food, not separating food into this is good and this is bad, kind of getting rid of quote unquote diet culture, making sure to help people understand that diet is just the way that you eat food, right? It doesn't have to be that, you know, you're on keto or you're on Atkins or whatever it may be. 
It's just building that healthy relationship with food and then using some strategies, which I would consider more so, I guess, individualistic strategies, finding out what works best for the person, whether that's maybe these diets that are called fad diets, maybe they do work for you, but we're introducing them in a healthy manner. Also making sure we're being honest with why these diets work or using strategies that work on behavior change. Like, Hey, making sure when you're at the dinner table, maybe you're you know doing something social with your family rather than doing something quote unquote mindless watching TV, Netflix, et cetera, paying attention to your food, finding schedules for your food, certain types of behavior changes that you can find that are going to help you maybe have a better relationship with food. And then kind of the last point that I see is, you know, when you're making these behavior changes, kind of making a distinction between, you know, yes, being healthy with food, but understanding biological hunger versus kind of, I guess you could say the emotional side of hunger, which is, you know, yes, respect your body when you physically feel you're hungry, whether it's from, you know, just it's that time to eat again, or, you know, you did a really hard workout. So it's time to, you know, fuel your body and also understanding when you're full, like, Hey, it's okay. You don't have to force feed yourself. Or if you feel like you need a little bit more food in your body to go ahead and give yourself permission to eat. Do, do you guys find a feel that's kind of what intuitive eating is? You guys are more yes, so the experts exactly. on that end. Yes. I think that was a really good way of putting it. Awesome. So yeah. So from my perspective, when I hear this, this just, you know, you know, makes me smile because everything that I talk about when it comes to coaching is, you know, there's rules and regulations when it comes to program design, for example, or working with a client, but there are very few absolutes, right? It's, I look at the individual as a person first, take my knowledge and I program specifically to them. Intuitive eating leaves a lot of gray areas. It's like what works best for the person, forming healthy relationships, focusing on behavior change and how this person can work to better their lives. And also this whole, whole dichotomy between good and bad. We hear this all the time with exercise. Knee extensions are bad for you. Upright rows are going to destroy your shoulders. No, they're not. It's all about how we do them, the dosage in which we do them, and why are we doing these particular things, right? There's nothing wrong with eggs, but if you ate 30 eggs a day, that might be a problem just from a caloric. I mean, props to you if you can do it, man. I love eggs, but you know, it might not be the best thing from a you know a calorie maintenance standpoint, right? So I, I really think it goes in line with the whole autonomy, focusing on the individual standpoint from wellness. Yes. I love that. I think what I see a lot of times with exercise professionals, whether it's trainers, coaches, whatever it may be, is they think of it as just like the eat whatever you want diet because we right. enforce so much <laughs> with it, like listening to your hunger cues, no food's good or bad, but that doesn't mean you're only eating Snicker bars all day long. Like it is more right. about learning those hunger cues. So you do crave other food besides those sugary things you're currently craving because they're off limits to you in your head. So I think that's usually the... I guess, fear, if you will, that trainers and things often do have with that style of eating. Well, and here's the thing, like, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this as we get into, you know, uh, health at every size and, and just some like stats about obesity, like whatever we're doing isn't really working. So my philosophy, like, you know, what's, what's the, what's the quote? Uh, the definition of craziness is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Like we keep telling people, you're just not disciplined enough. You're just not this. You need to stop being lazy. You need to do this. You need to cut that out. We've been saying that for decades and nothing's changing. So that tells me that we'll probably need to change our approach to what's going on. And also I'm just, you know, same thing with fitness. I know a lot of these have similarities, like that whole boot camp instructor side of like fitness where it's like, you need to do this and you make people feel, I guess, small for lack of a better term. Very few people respond positively to that. So 
putting people in this narrow box of like, you have to stick to this diet. If you don't, you're the problem. You're weak, you're lazy, et cetera. Most people are not going to respond positively to that. And in our culture, it's probably going to, you know, not saying that that language would necessarily directly cause issues we see like eating disorders, but I would, you know, be remiss to say those aren't contributing factors. So yeah, I, I think we need to do a better job and we might as well start trying new things. And this by all accounts seems to be making sense. Yeah. Yeah. I hope it does become something that like is more widespread, more than just among RDs because it is so important for, like you said too, fitness is also another thing that can be incorporated into. It's just so much more than just nutrition. It's mental health as well. It's, it's a whole, I hate, I hate saying lifestyle, but it really is a lifestyle change. <laughs> no, it is. It is. And, and kind of just from the, you know, I, I understand the fear. I think you and I, Hannah, talked about this when we were mentioning the podcast. I always try and separate people from ideas, right? You're not the sum of your ideas. You are more than that. And I always like to start with the presupposition. I know there's bad people, but that people are coming from a place of genuine care, right? Most people in the fitness industry do it because they want people to better their lives. There's the con person that just wants a quick buck or whatever. But I understand the hesitation for like you mentioned, like, oh, it's just you eat everything you want. You're going to mess up my client's success. They're just going to eat all the candy bars, all the sugar, all the candy, whatever, et cetera. And that's going to derail their progress. I understand the fear and the hesitation. I think what needs to happen is we both got to start always with what's our goal. Let's make sure we got our goals down, that we all want the same thing, people to get better. Let's make sure we got our definition straight. And then let's be rational and talk about the science, what's going to work best for our person. And at the end of the day, we have to put our biases aside if we want to, you know, better help our person because, hey, I'll be the first one to say, if I'm trying something and I'm wrong, it hurts, but I'm going to do my best to say, you know what, man, I, I fucked up. I, I got to change my plan. Or if Hannah, for example, if you gave me some advice with my client, like, hey, Damien, this strategy that you were trying, you know, it may not be the best thing. Why don't you try this? It's going to hurt my pride a little bit because I thought I had it right, but I'm willing to change because it's going to be best for my person. Yeah, exactly. I love that. We are always trying to preach like patient or client-centered care here. And that just goes right along with that. So good. Absolutely. Yes. So next thing we're going to focus on, right, is the health at every size. Right. Let's mm -hmm. do it. Yeah. So, so this one I have mixed views on. And I definitely want to start, make sure I got, again, like I did before, make sure I got my definition right. So my understanding of at health or healthy at every size is that, you know, there's no such thing as a one size fits all body, right? There's diverse bodies, diverse healthy bodies, you know, mainly as well, right? Health is, doesn't just look like, you know, the six foot tall, skinny blonde, for lack of a better term, right? There are, you know, it's a spectrum, like we talk about with a lot of things. Um, things I like about this, it, before, I guess, is that is that kind of like the main concept you all would say when it comes to health at every size? I'd say so. I think the biggest thing I've taken away from Hayes is it's not you're not able to judge someone's health status based how they look i think that's the biggest thing i've personally taken away from it yes. in the research that i've done and it kind of like removes weight from treatment is another thing that i've seen a lot about it too like mm -hmm. like a haze physician for example probably wouldn't use a person's weight very much in the treatment of that patient gotcha i think that's so a good point yeah this is where it gets tricky. I'll start with things that I really like about it. First and foremost, you know, representation is a good thing. 
let's just start with the i'll get some stats so let's start with the presupposition that let's just assume if you were at this size it may not be best for you health wise even if that's true those people should be represented because we hope that those people feel represented in a way that they want to be encouraged to be more physically active or adopt healthy behaviors the biggest example i could think of it was maybe two years ago the world caught on fire when there was a mannequin that was slightly larger than your standard mannequin the, the world lost its shit and i'm like you got first of all mannequins in general don't look like people right they're all taller than most people they're thinner than most people so for men and women right the, the guy mannequin is jacked beyond recognition they look like an nfl player and the female is you can basically see through her with how thin it is and that's not to that's i want to be very clear too that's not to dismiss people who actually have that body size i don't want to do that because there are people who are naturally built like that and they shouldn't feel weird or uncomfortable in their body as well what i am saying is just like any body type, that's a very small proportion of body types. So there's nothing wrong with showing larger people, taller people, shorter people, whatever it may be. So the fact that you're showing that, and look, anecdotally speaking, one of the biggest things I hear from people, it tends to be more so women, but I know men say this as well, is that I can't even fit in athletic clothes. And like, I want to feel somewhat good while I'm at the gym. Feeling good and comfortable in your body doesn't mean that you're comfortable where you are and that you don't want to change. So they're like, I can't even find athletic attire that I really like. I'm going to Walmart and getting these uncomfortable clothes. I don't really want to wear them. And then they're not very flattering. So I'm like, man, I don't even want to go to the gym. And I'm like, clothing stopping you? Like, that's we're failing if that's the point, man. So when people freaked out the mannequin, I was like, that's insane. So I definitely think representation is a big thing. I also understand just from a biological standpoint, we're all built a little different. So it's expected to see different people, different sizes, right? You got taking the extremes, the NFL offensive lineman who's, you're going to tell me that guy's not healthy. That man will run through anything. He's very strong, very able-bodied. But then you also have on the other extreme end of athletic, you have gymnasts, very small, very petite, maybe muscular and wiry, but you know, completely opposite side of the spectrum. And then you have everything in between. So I definitely agree. You can't just look at someone necessarily and know they're healthy. The part where I start getting tricky about it, and I think Emily kind of mentioned it a little bit, is it not using weight as necessarily an indicator of health per se. This gets tricky. I'm seeing and hearing a little bit from, it's not really mainstream, I would say. It's just kind of coming into the conversation of health and fitness, where I'll hear the general public and some professionals saying that, you know, Obesity doesn't matter. That you being obese has no indication of negative health outcomes. And that's not true. In my, I'm open to being wrong, but my understanding, and I got some, some stats that I'll bring up, obesity is correlated pretty well with a lot of physiological issues. And that isn't to say that, you know, people who are obese should be treated any differently. People who are dealing with obesity shouldn't, you know, have to feel less than or think they're different or value themselves less than that's just saying at that point in time where your body is you're dealing with something you're for lack of a better term i guess you could say you're, you're in some way not as healthy as you could be just like when anyone's dealing with any other kind of physical physical issue that they're dealing with it's important to separate those things but when i start seeing something like weight doesn't matter or at a excess adiposity doesn't matter as a trainer I take issue with that. And as someone who has a, a exercise science background, I take issue with that 
because yes, in school we learned it, but on my research that I do on my own, of course, because you want to go past school, I'm also seeing like time and time again, like we're getting bigger, our health is getting worse. Some of the top conditions that cause death in the United States are directly linked to obesity, things like cardiovascular disease, cancer, type two diabetes, all these things are linked to obesity very well. Um, so when I start seeing that, I start getting a little, I guess, confused is the word to say. I, I understand, I guess, why they would say that because we want to, when people are sick, when people are dealing with obesity and their health isn't well, we want to deal with it from a compassionate standpoint. That's, that's the first thing, right? Being rude to people is, is never going to be good or productive. It's going to diminish them. It's going to make them feel small. I, uh, I always give the example, you know, it's important to be truthful, but me telling my client who's, you know, five, six, 300 pounds of that, Hey, you're obese and you're more likely to die from cardiovascular disease. Like as true as that statement is, that is so wrong and so hurtful and not productive. So you can't just be truthful and, and fact-based alone because people are going to think you're an asshole and not listen to you. <laughs> On the flip side, you can't also not tell the truth and say that these things have no relation to disease. Now there's things with, or I guess you could say they, they, they work in combination with obesity, but maybe you're independent in some regards like depression, sleep, and stress. Those things also cause cardiovascular disease, cancer, you know, other issues as well. But to say that you being obese doesn't contribute to those things, in my personal opinion, is being dishonest. Now, I don't know. What, what is what is y'all's take on that? Yeah, I think you put that really well. I I know a really big part of haze is just removing weight from the conversation. And that goes to what you were just saying, where that can be harmful. It's beneficial and that we're not hurting feelings, but we also do have to discuss it at some point. Yes. And I try really hard. It's a hard balance, kind of what you were just saying, like, in my own practice as a weight management RD, I have to just like have this chat every day. And I always do try really hard to remove weight from the conversation where I can. It's hard because I work in a weight clinic where we weigh you every single time we see you. I have it on a graph. I am always thinking mm -hmm. about it. But I try my hardest not to compliment on weight loss alone and that sort of stuff. It's more about like those non-scale victories, things I'm always talking about on here. Absolutely. So I think that removing it from the conversation in general is... A good idea in general, it shouldn't be the focus of anything with any client. That should always be just one topic of conversation, not the focus. But removing it completely often isn't going to be, I think, the best solution. I agree. I'm just, while Damien was talking, I just saw another component of haze that I completely forgot to mention. But I think something the ideology shifted toward is more emphasis on mental health and it really is trying to emphasize that your health isn't and your well-being isn't just defined by what, how you're doing physically. And it's also a contributor is mental health, which is a really big component that I think it's kind of a nuanced topic that I feel like a lot, at least I've noticed the older generations don't put as much emphasis on and it isn't taken as seriously. And I think that's what kind of the movement is trying to focus on more as well, that you can be a larger size and as long as how you feel and how you're doing mentally is okay, then you're doing fine. But that being said, I also agree that with any 
extreme factor in your life, there are most likely cons that come along with it. It's important to recognize them. So I think something really challenging with Hayes is putting that emphasis on your mental health and being accepting of all body sizes and not making judgments about someone's health based on how they look and removing weight from the conversation is really important. But to say that there is no correlation between how much you weigh or like not even how much you weigh because you could be like like a NFL players you're saying where they have probably they have a higher body fat percentage, but that's just because of most likely the position they're playing and that's very exactly. normalized there. So it is a very challenging conversation to have. And it is important to recognize, I think, both sides of it almost. 100%. No, completely. I. It's funny, when I was researching to, to talk with you two, I remember back in undergrad, this was probably in 2016 or 2017, I did a project. I took a, a weight management course that was centered around like obesity strategies. Nutrition and obesity has always been something that I, I really enjoy studying. And Hannah knows I love talking about the biopsychosocial model. And through my research, I was seeing how, you know, I, I think, you know, as naive as I was, I thought that, you know, obesity was more so just that pure biological thing, right? And you do read about, you know, things like um, certain hormones that that become, you know, more more or less sensitive depending on your adiposity. Um, oh, God, I'm blanking on the hormone right now that is always talked about with obesity that becomes harder to manage. Ghrelin, leptin. Ghrelin and leptin. Thank you. Yeah, how I learned about that. I'm like, wow, so being obese, you know, you actually feel generally more hungry than someone who isn't. So that makes it tough. That's a biological issue. But then there's also the psychosocial components, right? Like, are you depressed? Did obesity cause your depression or is it vice versa? Because I know later we'll talk about some, you know, things with obesity and pain. We know that 6.7% of Americans are clinically depressed and they're more likely to be obese than not. So that's a tricky part we have to deal with. Um, and then the social factors, like what was your family life like? How was your environment? Did your family care about fitness or were they even, did they have the resources to care about fitness? So learning that and taking into account the mental health side, I think that's amazing that we are doing that because you're right, the older generation, you're lazy, whatever, yada, yada, yada. It's like, no, we're trying to get a more holistic picture because it's not as simple as just put down the fork and try a little bit harder. Um, but the thing I do want to, you know, I, I'm, I like that you guys are, are saying that and I definitely think, you know, Weight's important, but it's also important to mention, like, you know, it isn't always a perfect indicator. Um, this kind of goes into, like, sometimes I hear, hear about, like, BMI, for example, right? This is a perfect time to talk about this. BMI is not by any means perfect, right? Uh, it's a decent indicator for general health, but it only is a correlation between height and weight. Um, it doesn't directly measure adiposity. What we do know is that so if you do a BMI test on someone, you have to look at what's called, you know, specificity and sensitivity. So specificity, meaning the people that test positive for having a high BMI, usually in research is defined as greater than 30. If they test positive, and then you compare it to actually measuring their excess adiposity to see if they're truly obese, they usually correlate relatively well. So but the cutoff is 30. Overweight individuals is actually not a very good indicator. If you go from that, you know, 25 to 
those individuals tend to have just as good, if not better health outcomes than people that's in the normal BMI category. So I kind of scrapped that. But for people who are 30 plus, generally speaking, you catch most people that you should. The issue is you don't catch a lot of people because it has a low sensitivity by itself. So we have this test that's kind of half good. And that's why when I work with clients and I discuss you know, weight loss goals, if it's important to them, I also use waist circumference. Waist circumference is a quick and easy way, not only for you, but the client can learn it as well to measure general uh, abdominal adiposity. And we have pretty good cutoffs research-wise. It might vary a little bit for a few different uh, populations, but usually for men, we want to have a waist smaller than 40 and for females, a waist smaller than 35. Um, so if I get a client and they're like, hey, you know, I looked at a BMI chart and it says I need to lose weight. First thing I'll say is, okay, well, first of all, if that's important to you, we'll have a conversation. We'll discuss other goals that may be important to you. Second of all, we can maybe look at your waist circumference and see if maybe that's advisable. I'm a perfect example. I'm considered overweight based on my height and uh, weight, but my waist circumference is like 33, 34, which is nowhere near the cutoff. Same thing. If I had a client who they were overweight or maybe even towards the obese category, but they had a perfectly fine waist circumference, I'm going to say, Hey man, I mean, if you really want to focus on weight loss, cause you think you need to, maybe we can try, but let's focus on some other goals. Maybe that are important to you. Cause I don't really see the need to. So I kind of use it as a risk stratifier to determine if weight loss is actually appropriate. I really like that. Cause it's like, it's a component of what you're looking at, but it's not the defining factor of what their objective is going to be while working yeah. with you. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I did have a question for, for you two, because this is something that I'm trying to work on. I know I'm the one being interviewed, but I need help because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I work with trainers and this is kind of my strategy for determining if someone should be recommended to lose weight. And I want to hear, hear y'all's opinion. So someone comes to us and says, hey, they want to lose weight. Okay, we can do the BMI waist circumference comparison. Go from there. What if someone comes in and they're like, hey, I'm not really sure, or I want to lose weight, but I don't know how much I want to lose. I could say, what, what I've done historically is say, let's look at BMI in terms of the general ranges. Let's aim for the higher end, and we'll use waist circumference as kind of a check because that kind of gives us a, like a guide of like maybe ballpark if you'll be here because I don't know really how to give an exact or a decent number on that. But I at least get once you get like the waist circumference down, I can say, hey, this is a pretty healthy point, making sure they're not doing any, you know, crazy dieting, their exercise is good and they feel good. I'll kind of use those as, as benchmarks. Do y'all have any other like recommendations of like someone says I want to lose weight, but I don't know how much, like where do you go from there? That's a good question. There is this thing called ideal body weight, but I have a very hard time with it because it is literally just like for a female, for example, taking their height in inches, like I'm five foot seven. So you take that seven, multiply by five, my ideal body weight is 135. You had a 1200. Okay. Sorry, I kind of like jumped ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I am 30 pounds heavier than that. And I think I'm a generally healthful person. So that's, a, I have a very hard time with that. It's kind of like BMI in that way, in that it's one recommendation and you could be either way above that or below that and still be a very healthy person. So that is one way. I, it's very, very vague and I have a hard time saying it sometimes because everyone doesn't know how to take it. But I always kind of just say, like, you'll know it when you get there. You know, we'll try our best to work towards your weight loss goals in a nice, slow, steady, sustainable way. But I don't like setting a specific weight loss goal or saying you have to hit this goal of like 145 or whatever it might be, because 
that could be way off. You just don't know right. until they get there. And it could be something where they get to it. It's not even sustainable. It's not where their body wants to be hanging out at. So I have a really hard time setting weight loss goals in general. It's more for me about just setting like short-term goals, you know, one, one week, one month at a time. That makes sense to me. I don't have anything else to contribute to that. <laughs> I like what Hannah said. <laughs> With, um, so one term I remember is set point theory, if I remember correctly. Is that still like a thing where like your body relatively feels comfortable in the small range? And like once you get there, you'll, like you said, you'll know when you're there and like you'll, you'll see weight pretty much plateau when you check all the boxes of like caloric maintenance is good, physical activity is high, life factors, stress, et cetera, are managed. This is where you are. This is probably where you're going to stay. Yes. So that is still a thing. It's actually a really big part of intuitive eating because with intuitive eating, the goal is not weight loss, weight gain, weight maintenance. It's about building those behaviors more so than your weight. But oftentimes with intuitive eating, you do end up the goal is to, if there is a goal, I guess, for weight, it is to get to that set point weight. And again, you don't know what it is. We don't have like a name tag saying I'm supposed to weigh 145 pounds. <laughs> you just have to kind of figure it out, which is hard. Yeah. And that's so much of science and healthcare in general is just trying things, seeing how it goes. But um, yes, that is still a thing. I have a really, I follow a really cool person on Instagram, a dietitian, and I'll share her blog on set point weight in our description because she does a really good job of describing it because it is, it is a very interesting theory and it's true. I actually nice. am a firm believer in set point weight. See, a lot of people are going to hear this and think, well, you're just, you know, you're not saying an answer. It's like, well, this is why Hannah and I are cool is because, you know, you, there, isn't there isn't necessarily a answer where you can be like, it's got to be this. So I appreciate that nuanced approach. I think I piss off a lot of my patients and clients because they want me to just tell them what to do. I'm just like, tell I me the can't. answer. Yeah. It's I'm like, like yeah, I an answer. if I could, I would. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, we'll just know it. We'll, we'll try these different things. I have a million tools in the toolbox, but it's also different for everyone too, which is hard because it may work for someone else, but not yes. for you. So we really don't know. Very true. Okay. That was so great. I love that our views are all quite similar on haze and intuitive eating. I know there are more extreme views both ways mm -hmm. and those definitely aren't right or wrong, but it is good to have someone on the exercise side of things who does kind of have this belief as well. It's good to hear and good to see. Absolutely. And I guess like the final point I just want to say is, you know, I think I might've mentioned this, but it's very important to reiterate the, you know, my job is to help people find ways to become healthy in whatever, you know, avenue they see fit. The number on the scale does not define who you are as a person. When you lose weight, your value does not go from being less to more, whether you're 300 pounds and then you get all the way down to 200 pounds or whatever it may be. Your value as a person doesn't change. I know from a societal standpoint, that may seem different. And I understand that. But just know that that's not the case. It's about you taking care of yourself and feeling good. Yeah, exactly. I always tell my patients and my clients, if you don't love yourself with the body you're at now, you're also not going to love it when you do meet your weight loss goals. So nope. the journey is what matters most. Absolutely. Cool. So I think that leads nicely into our next topic which will be basically about how Damien you will discuss 
different weight loss strategies with your clients from an exercise professional's point of view and what that might look like? Yeah, absolutely. The first one I think is important for trainers to distinguish is make sure that weight loss is actually an appropriate goal. Um, one thing that I always tell my new trainers is, and this isn't to put, you know, malintent on the client. It's don't always assume your clients know what they want. Um, there's a good chance when someone tells you what their goals are, um, number one, they're in a vulnerable place. Number two, it might be the first time they're actually articulating what they want to anyone. Um, their family doesn't know, maybe their significant other doesn't know. So they've opened up to a stranger for the very first time. And I always like to say that, you know, thinking and talking aren't very different from one another. Uh, you ever have a wonderful idea and then you talk with your friends and you realize, you know, in a kind way, they, they poke funny and you're like, and I really didn't think that through. It's because you hadn't had the chance to verbalize it to someone who can give you some constructive feedback. So always make sure that that's the goal of weight loss is important and it makes sense. Uh, an easy way to ask that is, you know, why do you think you need to lose weight or why do you think weight loss is important to you or why do you want to? And they might end up saying something else, which is like, well, I just really want to be leaner and toner. It's like, oh, okay, so maybe weight loss isn't the goal. Like, do you care about the number on the scale? No, not really. I just want to, you know, look fitter. Like maybe you care about body composition, not weight necessarily. So parsing that out from the beginning is great. Cause if you don't start with that, you might be going down this entire, you know, fitness journey and realize crap, I should have probably restructured or, or refocused the goals from the beginning in terms of practical strategies. Okay. You found someone you think they would be beneficial to lose weight. They're on board. You guys have a good relationship. All right, we're ready to go, ready to get active. What do we do? from a programming standpoint. The first thing is as you're tracking those goals, yes, it might be important to weigh the person, but it really is going to depend on the individual. Number one, you don't always have to weigh your client every single week. Like Anna mentioned, it's important to find other wins. How is your energy? How's your mood? How's your general relationships? Um, how's sleep going? Do you notice that your pants are fitting? You know, are they, are your pants getting bigger on you? Is your, are you on a different, notch on your belt do your shirts feel looser on you right there's other things that can go away from the scale because for a lot of people it causes fear and anxiety and they get discouraged so using other things as benchmarks and getting as many wins as possible it might seem silly and small to us but the more wins you can check check and check that's just going to boost their confidence get them excited and then when it's appropriate for them maybe you get them on the scale and you should be going the right direction the other thing too, even though we explain that weight loss isn't a linear process, that doesn't necessarily change how our clients perceive it, right? They go down a few weeks, it goes up a pound. It stays stagnant for a week, goes down. It does this kind of like up and down roller coaster. When they have one of those like, you know, plateaus or increases to them, they could think what's going on. This is wrong. Waste of time, waste of money. Fuck it. I'll just go do something else or I'll, you know, go back to that behavior that maybe wasn't the best uh, suited for me in the past. So know that for a progression standpoint or a progress standpoint, I should say, you don't have to always just check the scale purely. The next thing is, you know, working with small behavior changes within your scope of practice. So, you know, I'll always turn to the RDs because at some point I, I think it's very important to make sure professionals stay in their field. We should collaborate as much as possible, but I don't want to step on anyone's toes, nor am I qualified to, and I want to put my client in a bad situation. But with things that you can control, you know, having conversations about what is your relationship with food or what are some habitual patterns or strategies that you can identify? Like, 
hey, I can't tell you you need to eat this much chicken, this many strawberries. But I can say, hey, maybe at the dinner table, you know, try eating like, you know, half of the meal or when you feel full, don't force yourself to keep eating. Right. Maybe find small little strategies that you can start with that's going to help them. Um, and of course, intuitive eating, you can send them a link to a page, describe some of those strategies and work from there. From a programming standpoint, right? So actually writing the workout, I'm always gonna go back to ACSM guidelines. Only 23.4% of Americans roughly report getting those guidelines. And I'm pretty sure those are actually self-reported, which makes it even probably worse than it is because um, people are saying they're more active than they actually are. Um, so if you can get them to those guidelines in, in whatever way possible, as long as it's a slow, gradual progression, they're automatically going to get healthier, get more active, and most likely start losing weight and seeing positive benefits. Um, contrary to popular belief, I would also say your emphasis should probably be on resistance training. I know that might sound a little weird because you typically think weight loss, cardio. And there is truth to that. Cardio generally does burn more calories, which caloric expenditure and caloric burning is a big part of weight loss. However, it gets tricky because with weight loss, things are a lot more difficult. We get hungrier, right? It's more difficult to put effort forward. So certain types of cardio that might have high caloric expenditure might have people perceive it as more difficult and may actually increase your hunger. Whereas resistance training, yes, you might feel hungry after workout, but you won't necessarily feel as starving as you would if you did like a 30 to 45 minute hit workout, right? So Focusing on resistance training is going to be beneficial for that reason. It's also great because out of the two, aerobic and resistance training, resistance training is more neglected. And it's understandable. Everyone knows how to walk. Everyone has a decent idea of how to jog. People are a little bit more fearful or not as sure how to lift weights. So it's roughly, you know, quarter of Americans, less than a quarter of Americans get both. 50% report getting just the aerobic, less than 30% report just getting the resistance training. So it's lacking and it has great benefits for the general population obesity helps with insulin sensitivity helps with blood pressure. Actually, you can lower blood pressure with resistance training and it helps with body composition. I wouldn't worry about people doing too much cardio when they're overweight. If they're, you know, have healthy habits and they're being more active, I'm not going to say, Hey, you can't go for a walk. What I will say is as they start losing weight and they start getting more into a fit routine, we do want to make sure that they are building muscle or retaining the muscle that they just currently have, which resistance training will help do. Whereas overemphasis on cardio can be a little bit detrimental in that direction. So definitely focusing on resist resistance training. Cardiovascular speaking, especially in the beginning, I'm going to focus on low intensity steady state training, known as LIS. Um, not to say that people can't do high intensity interval training, but just as a general rule, this is one of those program algorithm things. I start here again, lower perceived, you know, effort in general, the intensity is going to be lower, but it doesn't seem as hard for people. Um, if people get bored, you can get creative, like have them go on different types of machines, have them do things they enjoy. As long as their heart rates up and their RPE is up, you'll be good. Right. Getting in that moderate intensity range. Um, eventually you can incorporate hit to help burn more calories and add that creative fun factor where people are like, Damon, I'm bored of walking on the treadmill. I'm like, cool. You're doing good. Let's add some circuit training. Let's add some hit, um, some high intensity interval training or some functional training. Let's find ways to get the heart rate up in a different fashion. 
So those are kind of the two programming things I look for. And then kind of the overall theme is maximizing enjoyment. It should be for any program, but especially when you're exercising and you're dealing with obesity. And I have, I've worked with obese clients my entire you know career, my short career that I have. But I have the most respect for people who bust their ass and are like carrying all that extra weight and they're unconditioned. So you have people who haven't worked out for years and they're still kicking ass. So I'm going to do my best to make sure they're enjoying it to some extent. It doesn't mean it's easy, but that means that they're finding things that they like, whether it's, you know, I like a particular exercise, I like a particular style or set scheme, whatever the heck it is, make sure it's enjoyable in some fashion. And then from the nutrition side, right, making sure if they're talking to an RD or if you want to give them some general recommendations, protein and fiber are always good rules of thumb. You know, making sure protein is relatively high, you know, you can give out that recommendation. I know it varies from place to place. Usually they say like 1.6 grams per kilo up to a certain point, but I know it gets fuzzy at the top. And then fiber, you know, making sure they got a good amount of fiber as well because it's high in satiety. I actually have, I thought of a quick question and it's kind of going back to the beginning of your program discussion is I wanted to hear I, I know what the answer is, but I want to make sure that the audience also knows is what is your explanation or defense behind resistance training if people are afraid of gaining weight and being too bulky looking? Because I know that is a pretty common conversation I've heard a lot. Oftentimes, with I've seen mostly with like college girls because mm-hmm. we just came out of college, so that's a population I'm quite familiar with. Yeah. But what is, are your thoughts on that? That entire perceptive that perception of weight training will just make me big and bulky and not help me lose weight. Yeah, that's a terrific question. Um, for the vast majority of the population gaining muscle mass is by no means easy. Uh, so if you're worried about gaining muscle mass, uh, good luck. If you figure out how to do it, please let me know. I could use some help. <laughs> so that's the first thing I would say, right? It's, it's not easy. And that's not to discourage people, but to know that like, you're not just going to, you know, breathe near a dumbbell and immediately gain 10 pounds of muscle mass. <laughs> the other thing is too, and this is kind of a, a, a weird part in the literature where a lot of information seems to be changing, but the proportion to muscle gaining and fat loss is a very confusing conversation that I'm not going to get into because I'll start getting over my head. But as you start losing weight, right, you can lose weight on the scale and gain muscle mass simultaneously in some instances. That's the ultimate goal, right? Oh, my body fat's gone down. I look smaller. I feel better. My clothes fit better. And I'm starting to see some definition in my body. That is what is probably going to happen to a majority of people, especially when they first start training. So the fear of I'm going to get bulky, I'm going to get bigger. It's okay. I understand the fear, but it's probably not going to happen. And unless you're training in a very specific way and eating a caloric surplus, you're probably not going to get bigger per se. You'll see more so definition and what people commonly refer to as toning or seeing more muscle protrusion. Cool. Thank you for that. (laughs) That was a great question. That is something I deal with every day because I'm always trying to (laughs) encourage resistance training with my patients because like Damien already had demonstrated the benefits of that with weight loss are so, so there's so many. 
but that's they're often very nervous when I first introduce it. Yeah, usually, that's a stereotype. We got to break, man. Yeah, yeah. I wish that would go away. So hopefully, there are just millions of listens to this podcast, so the stereotype is over. To the moon. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, moving on to our next question. Um, this one I'm really excited about because we have never discussed this at all on the podcast, and I know this is kind of your thing, Damien. I just love hearing you talk about this. So I appreciate that. Yes, I'm so excited. So we've talked about obesity. We're going to continue that conversation. But how about pain? We don't talk about that a lot on here, and I'm so excited to hear your thoughts. So is there a correlation between obesity and pain? How does that work? Why is that the way it is? What is that all about? Yeah, that's a great question. And I definitely won't go on the pain tangent uh, here because I want to make sure you know I'm respectful of everyone's time and for the listeners. So if you want to know about like what pain is exactly, people might say, I know what that is. That's easy. I would definitely recommend to go to my website, um, theshiftmethod.org and look at blog post number two. And then after that, read number three, because that's a lot of conversation we're going to have right here in terms of those stats and those concepts. Because pain is a lot more tricky than just something hurts. Um, in terms of the relationship between obesity and pain, yeah, we see a pretty solid relationship. Um, you know, the first thing is, you know, it's it's one of those like which came first, right? The chicken or the egg kind of thing where is it I'm not physically active, therefore I'm in pain and therefore I'm obese or I'm not physically active. Like it's, it's hard to determine the order, but we definitely know that the things are related for a lot of reasons. Starting with physical activity, like I mentioned, less than a quarter of people meet those ACSM guidelines. So generally, if you're not active, right, so you're not burning calories, you might be increasing your caloric intake as well. It's going to lead to obesity. And we know people that aren't physically active have a higher chance of being in general chronic pain. That's the first thing. Um, we know that roughly uh, 80% of, of the population experiences some form of chronic lower back pain. So a lot of people experiencing experience it. Being physically inactive does not help. Um, now, people might say, oh, well, I'm worried about getting hurt in the gym or this and that. You know, definitely make sure you consult a professional, but always know that there's risk with everything, right? Physical activity is very safe, even weightlifting. It's weightlifting is safer than most contact sports, and people have, you know, no problem having their kids sign up for contact sports. So that's something to definitely think about is, well, we were okay with one thing, but fearful of the other. Um, there's risk to being inactive physically. So nothing is going to be, you know, free, whether you're active or not comes with risk. So that's just definitely something to consider. Um, like I mentioned, stress and depression, uh, about 6.7% of Americans report being clinically depressed. So actually diagnosed, but you're more likely to be depressed if you're obese. And then we know people who are depressed have higher reports of pain and pain sensitivity. So we know that there's kind of a correlation there. Um, lack of sleep. Again, you're starting to notice a pattern how all these things are kind of related to one another. Uh, sleep apnea is a very common thing for those who are obese. Um, it affects the general population as well, but more so those who are uh, obese. And we know that poor sleep increases pain sensitivity. Again, pain sensitivity being, uh, how do I explain this? If I was to give you a stimulus, like let's say a lot of these tests are used with cold or hot stimuli. So I have a, I have you, you got a good night's sleep, which is about seven to nine hours. I take this little cold, you know, tack or whatever, put it on your skin and you rate it from a scale from one to 100, how painful that was. If I took you when you're fully rested and feeling good, 
you're going to report a lower number than if you got a crappy night's sleep. Your body's just going to be a little more sensitive to any stimulus that comes in contact with. So having sleep issues, like having sleep apnea from being obese, is going to make your sleep, you know, not as beneficial as it otherwise would be. And then therefore you're going to have higher pain sensitivity, which isn't a good thing. Obesity, this is one of the few times where I'll actually talk about inflammation because I think it's overblown with like, you know, this diet removes your inflammation and yada, 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 right? I'm sure you two hear it all the time, but true like uh, disease state inflammation where your body is in chronic excess of inflammation. Um, obesity seems to put you in a pro-inflammatory state where you have a lot of biological and chemical markers that say, hey man, like these markers are going to be like pro-thrombotic where like you're more likely to clot, more likely to have issues with your heart and more likely to have inflammation that may lead to worse outcomes with pain and, and how you feel. Um, and then of course there's kind of the obvious, which is, you know, it's an unconditioned body with more weight than it normally would have. So you're kind of having to deal with that where it's like, you know, imagine just, you know, over time you started adding just more weight to your body and having to deal with that. Yeah. You adjust to it, but it's just making your, you know, it's taxing your, your body and your physiology more every day. That is so interesting to me. I, have a lot of patients who struggle with pain, obviously working in the, with the clientele that I do. Um, I had never thought about how depression and sleep would play a role in that. That's really interesting. I mean, I always had just kind of made the correlation of you have more weight on you. So of course that might make your bones a little bit, they're working a little bit harder. So that might yeah. lead to the pain, but I had never really gone much further than that in my head. But a lot of our patients do see the hospital I work for has a pain management program as well. And a lot of them do go to that program as well as weight management because they do go so hand in hand. The hope is that, and this is where it gets tricky, right? It, it may not matter, but it's, you know, let's say you're having trouble sleeping, right? You're an otherwise healthy person. You have trouble sleeping. Okay. My sleep is shit. So now I start eating more to, you know, give me some more positive emotion, hopefully, because I cope with, you know, an eating behavior, right? Okay. So now I'm, I'm not sleeping well. I start eating more and because I start eating more, I start gaining weight and because I'm gaining weight, I'm not happy with how I feel, look, et cetera. Now I'm obese over time. So sleep can be this, the, the catalyst, right? It could be depression. Maybe you start otherwise healthy, a traumatic event, or just over time you develop clinical depression. I'm depressed. Now I'm not sleeping as well. Now, because of those two things, I start using a coping, me coping mechanism and now I start eating more. It's hard to tell which one starts. But what we do know is that the these things tend to go together. So it can't hurt to, you know, try to address one. And we know that with physical activity and good eating, they kind of all will probably hopefully start working together. Yeah. It's like a perfect little triangle. Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Okay. I think that's all we have, right? Yeah. Okay. The important question, right? The most <laughs> important question. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, Damien, that was so, so, so much good information. People are going to love hearing about all this. Um, I learned a lot also, so it was just Same. so good. Appreciate that. Same. So, uh, yes, like Damien said, now for the actual fun part of the, the conversation. <laughs> it's always just science and weird stuff like that until the end. This is what you guys are really here for, I know. So, <laughs> bonus question of the day. This one's going to be controversial, I think. Are muffins really just unfrosted cupcakes? And we always let our guests go first and get their thoughts out. So, Damien, let us know. Are they really just unfrosted cupcakes? 
yeah, so the psycho that I am, and kind of like how I mentioned in the beginning, I first like, what's the definition of a cupcake? I always want to make sure my definitions are straight, right? So after doing a little digging and thinking, I came to the conclusion that, you know, muffin is it's probably more like a bread, if I had to guess. It's kind of like, because of the consistency and the way it's made, it's like a sweet and sometimes savory type of bread. Um, the important thing, though, is that, well, you know, it's not a cupcake. Even if it was, muffins are better anyway. So I think that's really the more important thing to get through. I'm not a huge sweets guy. I like sour. I like salty. Um, so, you know, muffins for the win all day. Um, being Emily's BFF for a while, I know that she has a different answer than that. So I'd love <laughs> to hear Emily's point of view on this. Let's hear this. So I I know we talked about this like right before this episode, but I've been thinking about it. Unfortunately, oh, no. like my mind was distracted oh. during this episode <laughs> a little bit, but I definitely agree because I was going to say that it is, oh, Cupcake is just a muffin with frosting, like a fun topping. And then I was thinking about, I was like, Cupcakes are normally pretty dry and have definitely that much more like lighter cake texture. Whereas muffins, I, I'm trigger warning if you don't like the word moist. Fast <laughs> forward muffins, 30 seconds. Muffins are that's the one that's got to be bleeped out. That one. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Muffins are definitely more moist, and like even if they do have that top section, that like if you like to like take off the top, like I do, like the muffin tops, like kind of the best part of the muffin. This is true. That's like not a cupcake. So I was gonna originally say that muffins are cupcakes, just unfrosted, but now. That I've thought about it. <laughs> I'm going to say that they are different. But I'm if we're going right into, but if we're going into which one's better, that's I'm going to have to go cupcakes. Oof. Because Hannah knows I am a sprinkles fanatic. Okay. And I will eat things just for the sprinkles. <laughs> <laughs> so the way food looks is so important to you. It makes me laugh. <laughs> Okay, well, I was also distracted while you guys were talking just now, and I was doing some research. And for me, it's about the food science part of things. So apparently, I guess I did know this, but I didn't think of it before. Cupcakes are made by creaming the butter and sugar together to create a soft, smooth, fluffy batter, whereas muffin batter is not beaten together as much. And so cupcakes have like more bubbles in them there's just like kind of different ingredients too so like the cooking and the preparation process is different so from a food science perspective they are different as well because i was kind of the same i was like no they're just frosted muffins but i have to agree that they're not so for so for the tiebreaker which is better yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was gonna say Gosh, I will, I'm a human garbage disposal I'll literally anything <laughs> so i have a very hard time answering these questions uh, for me, it's all about my mood too. I'm a big mood eater. Yeah, that's a good I'm feeling. But if I had to pick, I think I'd go with muffin. Yes. I think I'd go with muffin. I love a crumbly top and like fruit yes. and stuff inside of there. I don't like sprinkles, as you know, Emily. <laughs> I don't either. See, yeah. and I knew we were good people, man. I Come know. On. I know. I'm a minority. <laughs> you are. Sorry, Emily. 
Maybe now, do you guys time. have a favorite? Like Emily, do you have a favorite cupcake? And Hannah, do you have a favorite muffin? Like, like if you could, you know, you could only take one cupcake or one muffin with you for the rest of your life. Which one is it going to be? I'm going to have to go carrot cake cupcakes. Ooh, good choice. Cream cheese frosting. Those, yeah. Yes. Those Absolutely. are good. I have to admit. Do you I put sprinkles on a carrot cake though? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll start adding. I wonder if there are carrot sprinkles because that would be really fun. I think there are because this past Easter, I used them for one of my desserts that I made for a there you family go. gathering. That is my ideal cupcake. Okay. <laughs> I think for a cupcake, I like vanilla. That's just probably my favorite one in general. That's but good. for a muffin, I think like an apple cinnamon kind of thing would be my go-to. Yeah. Those are good. Yeah. What about you, Damien? Ooh. What's your favorite? I'm between... I'm the guy who likes, you know, nuts in my dessert. People are like, oh, that's disgusting. But I like the savory side. So it would either have to be a blueberry muffin with like the crumble on top, you know, or it would have to be like a, I really, really like zucchini nut muffin. It's wow, really good. good. It's really savory. And it's like, it's um mellow sweet. It's not overpowering. So it tastes really, really good. All yeah. good answers. Yeah, I guess we're all right. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Well, Damien, thank you again so, so much. It was an honor having you on today. People are really going to love hearing about all these different things we went over. Let our people know where they can find you. I know you are very active on the interwebs and this with great information. So let them know where they can find your stuff at. Oh, yeah. Thank you again, you two, for having me on. Uh, for anyone who's interested in content, I'm most active on Instagram. Handle is the underscore shift underscore method. I can't imagine usually daily content, uh, things for personal trainers or the general public. Um, I also do my own podcast as, as you mentioned in the beginning. So you can watch that at YouTube or on Spotify, um, on, they're both going to be the shift method or the shift method podcast. And then if you're interested in personal training, um, if you're in the South Florida area, you know, I do in-person buddy or group training or individual training, or I write program design too. I have clients that are in Indiana, across the United States. So you can check that out as well. If you are interested in, in personal training services, or if you want to get a t-shirt, head over to the shiftmethod.org. If you want uh, the services, click the take action tab, or just go to the services tab to get yourself some merch. Yeah. And we'll link all of that below too. So check out those links in the description. Awesome. All right, Damien. Thanks again. We hope you guys enjoy this one and we will see you next time. Yes. Thank you, everyone. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in on this episode of the Upbeat Dietitians with your hosts, Emily Krause and Hannah Thompson. We appreciate you all so much for continuing to support us. In order to support us and sustain the success of this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. If you'd like to provide us feedback for future episodes and guest stars, follow us on Instagram at The Upbeat Dietitians. Lastly, you can show us support by providing a monthly donation using the link at the end of our bio. Once again, thank you so much for listening today and stay tuned next Wednesday for a new episode. Until then, we hope you have a wonderful rest of your week.